Welcome, and this is the Valley View Friends Church Sunday Morning Podcast. This is Pastor Josh. I want to thank you for joining me. I am so glad to share this time with you today. At Valley View Friends Church, we are learning how to live as God's people, concerned with reaching and restoring hearts and homes with Jesus. If you want to learn more about our church, look us up at our website at valleyviewfriendschurch.org, and I want to encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, that way you can always get the next episode. Now let's turn our attention to this week's message. And this week's message is still in the season of Advent with a theme of joy, and in the effort to bring a little bit of joy, or I don't know, maybe it'll make you groan a little bit here, I've got some Christmas-themed jokes for you. We'll see how well these come across. How do you wash your hands over the holiday? With sanitizer. Why don't you ever see Santa in a hospital? Because he has private elf care. Why is Santa afraid of getting stuck in a chimney? Because he has claustrophobia. Mm. If Santa and Mrs. Claus had a baby, what would he be? Or she, I guess. A subordinate clause. What do you call a kid who doesn't believe in Santa? A rebel without a clause. (laughs) What happens if you uh, eat Christmas decorations? You get tinselitis. A gingerbread man went to the doctors complaining about a sore knee, and the doctor asked him, well, have you tried icing it? What did the third wise man say after his friends had already presented gold and frankincense? They said, but wait, there's mirror. Yeah, that's not so great, is it? Yeah. (laughs) Um, What do you get when you cross a snowman with a vampire? Frostbite. How does a snowman lose weight? He waits for the weather to get warmer. Why did the only why did only the letter E get a Christmas present? Well, the other letters were not E. I know you have to think about these if you don't catch them, huh? The three stages of man. He believes in Santa Claus, he doesn't believe in Santa Claus. He is Santa Claus, and I think there's a couple ways we can interpret that one. I hope these jokes, these puns brought a smile to your face. The holiday seasons can be stressful. They can be filled with obligations that are welcome, sometimes not welcome. Holidays anymore are becoming more and more fast-paced, and for many, there are lonely times. And then there's so much of modern Christmas is taken up by... Well, with gifts and shopping and parties and decorations, it's such a busy time. It's good for us to take a moment to reflect on the original gift of Christmas. The truth is, is that the gift that God has given us through that first Christmas, his son Jesus, that gift surpasses anything we might try to manufacture with holiday traditions. Even the themes of Advent that explore and reflect over that we we explore and reflect on them over the holiday season, those themes, peace, hope, joy, and love, even those themes have their limits without Jesus. We need to remember that Jesus is not the one who brings peace. Well, he's not just the one who brings peace. He is peace itself. He's not just the one who brings hope. He is hope itself. And he's not just the one who makes joy. He is joy itself. So today we're going to talk about joy. And I realize that joy can be a difficult topic. 
So we need to couch joy within the one who is joy itself. But I realize joy is not easy. And for some, the joy of Christmas seems very artificial. How can gift giving and holiday shopping and busy schedules and binging Christmas movies be joyful? These things can be fun and exciting, but once you remove Jesus, joy himself, there's a limit to the authenticity of the joy of the Christmas holiday. Not only is there a limit to how much joy you can experience at Christmas without Jesus, but Christmas can become a burden without him. Jesus, as I said, is joy himself. And when we ask Christmas traditions to be our joy instead of Christ, we're asking the holidays to produce something that is impossible without Jesus. If you've been stressing out trying to produce the perfect Christmas holiday, you have permission to rest and to stop. It will never be perfect without Jesus in your heart. Now, for some, the joy of Christmas is just very elusive. Perhaps you find yourself in a desert right now. Maybe you're actually in more of a walking nightmare. Bad news has moved in and it's become a house guest in your, li- in your life. For some of you, this is a result of the circumstances of life, something someone's done to you, something that's happened to you. Maybe you've cried out to God for relief, but you receive instead silence. And you want this drought to end. For you, putting a smile and singing about joy seems like a forced activity. I want to invite each of you, especially the Christian, to do your best to heed the words of Casey Sigmund. He writes this, Whether we call it Blue Christmas or Longest Night, we get the privilege to sit with our congregants in whatever exile they find themselves in during the commercial season of happy and model joy and embody hope and something deeper than the saccharine seasonality that Target and Hallmark have to offer. We have a duty as fellow Christians to model joy and hope and something deeper than just this artificial happiness you see everywhere. Joy is not simply about smiling and feeling good. It's about knowing and receiving the promises of God. I need you to hear that very clearly, so I'm going to say it again. Because I think we mistake joy with happiness, but it's different. Joy is not simply smiling and feeling good. It's about knowing and receiving the promises of God, knowing and receiving Jesus, who is joy himself. If you want true joy in your life, there's only one way you can have it, by receiving Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Now, our text today is from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet to the people of God before Jesus walked the earth, and Isaiah spoke words of warning to Israel because they were living on artificial joy, which quickly became an arrogance for them. They thought they were entitled to be blessed as God's people. They forgot that blessing and joy, well, it's a gift, and God is the one who gives it. So the Israelites, they faced judgment for their arrogance and their many sins. And you can read about it in the book of Isaiah and all through the Old Testament. But after a long season of desert living, being a people stripped of their homes, of their joy, God then speaks again to them through the prophet Isaiah. And so the word of God comes crashing into Israel's suffering. They've been in a desert and now he, he comes rolling in to bring relief. 
As with much of the Bible, these words have multiple meanings and layers. Isaiah 35, which is where we're going to be today, contains a promise of restoration for Israel back to their homeland, but also contains a future promise of a Messiah who will come and bring life in the desert where only desolation could be found. Then there's even another level at which the passage speaks of the future that every Christian looks forward to, a time when suffering and the struggles of this world will be reversed and everything will be made new. So let's read Isaiah 35 verses 1 through 10 and listen to what the world can be like when God, when Jesus comes crashing in. Beginning in verse 1, it's Isaiah 35 beginning in verse 1. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come and he will come with vengeance with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. And it will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. The wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast they will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing, and everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Real joy is had, is ours to be in our lives when we place our trust in Jesus, because he is joy itself. Isaiah 35 is a glorious text full of life, restoration, and wonder. It talks about streams in the desert, and there's nothing quite so wonderful, if you can think of it in this moment here in December, as a cool glass of ice water after a hot day of working in the hard sun. The text talks about the deaf hearing, the mute crying out, the lame leaping for joy. This is a text of wonder and joy, and it's strange because it follows Isaiah 34, which is the exact opposite. Isaiah 34 talks about desolation forever. And I'll just read a few verses from Isaiah 34, and it reads like this, Edom's streams will be turned into pitch, her dust into burning sulfur, her land will become blazing pitch, and it will not be quenched night or day, its smoke will rise forever. From generation to generation it will lie desolate, no one will ever pass through it again. It's an endless desolation. So wait, which one is it? How can there be a text speaking about desolation forever and a text right next to it speaking of desolation and the desert restored to life? Both are by God's hand. And the difference is you. 
whether you are willing to place your trust in God, and more specifically, whether you are willing to call Jesus your Lord and Savior. That makes all the difference whether you end up in Isaiah 34, which is desolation forever, or Isaiah 35, which is a restored, redeemed, and rejuvenated wilderness. J.R. Packer says this, Joy is not an accident of temperament or an unpredictable providence. Joy is a matter of choice, and I agree because we can choose Christ. And then we'll have joy in our lives. Isaiah 35 describes what happens when a person, a community, and a nation is willing to put their trust in Jesus. I've got a quote here. It's anonymous. Well, I couldn't remember where it came from, but I want to let you know this is someone else's idea. It says, When the rains of God fall, what appeared to be a barren waste springs into riotous color almost overnight. The rains of God create streams in the desert. There's redemption in Isaiah 35, but this text is not just talking about dust and dirt and dry places becoming full of plants again. This text is about Jesus. And we read, and as we read this during Advent to prepare ourselves, we read so that we may make room for what Jesus wants to do in our lives. Remember the story of the first Christmas. You think of that line, well, there's no room in the inn. And we're like that today. We're busy, we're burdened, we are swarmed over with obligation. We hear about Jesus and we think, oh, he's well and he's good. We want him in our lives, but we never make room for him in our lives. And so the challenge for you is, will you make room for Jesus in your life? Giving time to Jesus, giving your mind to Jesus, getting rid of something that you have to do or that you must that you think you must have in your life getting rid of something to let Jesus in. But as I ask you to make room for Jesus, think of Isaiah 35. Think of the streams in the desert bringing life to where there is only death, bringing abundance to where there is never enough. Now think of the ways Jesus describes himself or the miracles that he performs in the Gospels, because you will hear Isaiah 35 in the ministry of Jesus, and you will realize it's good to make room for Jesus, because Jesus will bring life and blessing and abundance and joy into your life. Let's think of the ministry of Jesus for a moment. There's a time when Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman in the Gospel of John. You can go to John chapter 4, verse 14, and it reads... But whoever drinks the water I give them, they will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's living water. That's a stream in the desert. Jesus meets some fishermen who are experienced, and uh, they've experienced an empty night of fishing. And catching nothing means they won't be able to support their families for that day. And we read these words in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5, verses 4 through 8. And it says, When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night. We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I'll let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the 
other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. You've got empty nets made full and bursting, abundance where there is lack. In John chapter 5, Jesus talks to a man who has laid as who has been an invalid uh, for 38 years. He sat on a mat within sight of the pool of Bethesda. And the pool was a place for the sick, for the blind, for the stricken, where they would wait, and the next person to get in would get healed. But he never was the next person. This man sat in a personal desert. He was unable to move his body to the pool to get his turn to get healing. And he's watching person after person get their turn and get better. Imagine the frustration and the despair seeing your restoration just feed away, but never able to reach it. In John chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, we read this. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred while I'm trying to get in. Someone else always goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. That day, the man experienced Isaiah 35, new life and restoration. All of Jesus' miracles are in some way a call out to Isaiah 35. The desert is beginning to live again. And the question is, is will you receive from God? Will you put your trust in Jesus, in him? Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6 says this, When John was in prison, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. John the Baptist, that's what that text is about. He's the one who's in prison. He's in his own desert, because it's prison, right? And it soon will be the end of his life on earth. Eventually, John will be beheaded, executed. It's understandable as he sits in prison that John wants to know if Jesus is the one. But I contend that John knew exactly who Jesus was, but he's trying to reconcile this to his time in prison. Perhaps this is John's last proclamation of who Jesus is, the final passing of the torch. So he sends his disciples to Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm not just a guy who does nice things for people. I'm not just a guy who cares about the poor. I'm not just a guy who cares about the least of these. I'm not just a friendly teacher that people like and imitate. Jesus says, I am Isaiah 35. I am the stream in the desert. I am the restoration of life. I am the one who brings sight to the blind and walking to the lame and life to the dead. Jesus is not just someone who can bring joy 
to you. He's not just a healer who can fix your ailment for today. He's not just a vending machine dispensing blessing. He is the glory of God crashing into this world. And Jesus is asking you to let him crash into your world, your life, this holiday season. And here's the thing. Real joy requires two journeys. If you want real joy, it's going to require two journeys. The good thing is, is we've got one we have to do and God does the other. The first journey is that God comes to us. And the second one is that we go to God. And Isaiah does contain two journeys. God bursts forth into the desert, and then he sets up a highway for his people to walk upon, a way of holiness for them to travel to him. And so, we need to talk about these two ways, just real briefly. First, we have God bursting into our world, and then second, our journey to God. So, let's talk about God entering into our desert to bring life. Every blessing, every renewal, every renewal, every restoration begins with God reaching out to us. And that's what Christmas is all about. Jesus, a babe born on in a manger, is God reaching out to you and me. I love Eugene Peterson's rendition of this particular verse in his translation, The Message, where he writes in John 14, 1, he captures it this way, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. I believe that's actually John 1, 14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God made a journey to us, to get close to us. Anselm writes these words, Death entered through one man's obedience or disobedience. Life is restored through one man's obedience. Sin came through the temptation of a woman. Salvation came through one born of a woman. The enemy conquered humanity by tasting of a tree, and Christ conquered the enemy by bearing suffering on a tree. Advent is God journeying towards you and me. But it's also about us journeying towards God. And so there is that second journey, our journey on the highway of holiness. And so if you want joy in your life, you have to start by saying yes to Jesus. You've got to make a move here. You've got to believe in Jesus. But I want to warn you, because some people will say, I believe in Jesus, but they don't really, because they like the idea, but they don't put the belief into action. So there are people out there who will say, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but they don't believe in everything he says. They just believe the things they like that he says. They don't always believe in the promises that he makes, and they don't always, they, well, I know this one to be true, they definitely don't always believe in what Jesus asks of us, you and me. But walking on the highway of God is you choosing to live a life of faith, constant belief, and trust in Jesus. And that also means it's action on your part, living out God's word as much as humanly possible. Charles Spurgeon says this, The greatest joy of a Christian is to give joy to Christ. And that comes through obedience, through holiness. 
Andrew Murray says this, Joy is not a luxury or a mere accessory in the Christian life. It is the sign that we are really living in God's wonderful love, and that love satisfies us. As we come to a close here, I want to make uh, one more point, and that's this. A long time in the desert, because some of us are in the deserts for a long time. A long time in the desert does not mean that there will be no bloom. And here's what I mean. I want to offer a word to those who are listening today. And you feel like you've been living in a desert for a long time. There's just no end in sight. Whether it's depression or loneliness or a hardship that you just haven't been able to get out of and around into blessing. Perhaps you're even a Christian. And you've heard sermon after sermon and promise after promise, but joy, happiness just seems to elude you. Maybe it's a heartbreak or a heartache you can't escape. Maybe it's an illness that's terminal. Maybe it's suffering, uh, something that has been done that's permanently damaged you. The promise of joy is well and good, but for you, I think you'll know if you're this person, it never really seems like it's real. And so the idea of the desert turning into paradise seems like it's never going to happen. I cannot promise you when the desert's going to turn into paradise. I don't know when. That's the key thing. The thing I can't promise is the when. But I do not want you to forget that God has promised that it will happen to all who put their trust in him. That desert will turn into a paradise. The length of time you spend in the desert doesn't diminish the joy that God wants to pour out. And actually, we all need to remember that Isaiah 35, at its first level of application, is about the Israelites, and they're suffering under the judgment of God, and they've lost their home country. They've been in exile for 70 years, experiencing desert. Now, the desert, well, never something God wants us to have. And never something we ask for, um, it can make us better able to understand and experience the eruption of life that happens when God enters into the desert and turns it into paradise. Casey Sigmund, I mentioned him earlier in the message and I bring him up again. He explains this idea of a long time in the desert and then a paradise by describing the phenomena of a California superbloom. A California superbloom happens when certain weather conditions line up and create just the right environment for the desert to bloom like crazy in what it looks like a computer edited photograph or fantasy. We cannot even dream of something so vivid as the reality of when this happens in California. In the spring of 2017, parts of the California wilderness experienced a rare superbloom event that could even be seen from outer space. It was so vivid. Thousands of people arrived to snap 
images for their Instagrams and be awed by the sight of the once dusty brown hills splattered with color upon color. When the desert blooms, it blooms abundantly, not half-heartedly, not hidden in some lonely valley, but for a few brilliant weeks, the world is transformed into one living Van Gogh landscape. And I would challenge you, for you listening in the podcast, to type California Superbloom and get a few of those pictures that are amazing to see. I mean, they all look like there's something made up on a computer, but it's just the reality of what happens. So what are the elements that lead up to this rare superbloom? Now, prolonged dormancy, of course. Many wildflower seeds must remain asleep for many seasons and then decide to wake up at roughly the same time after a long hibernation. The bloom is also helped by a long rainy season followed by an unusually cold winter to lock the moisture in. What that means is this. Harsh Undesirable conditions over many years seem to pave the way for the stunning explosion of a super bloom. Now, I'm not saying that God is taking you through a desert just to make heaven all the sweeter. But the desert and the trials can make the super bloom that God has in store for you all the better. If you will let God do what he has planned, and that's the key, letting God do what he has planned. Do not lose faith in what God wants to do, the paradise he wants to bloom in the desert of your life. Whatever you face, do not let the despair or struggle that you are in allow you to give up on the joy of God. And what God has promised is far greater than any photograph of flowers in the desert can portray. This Advent season, receive Jesus, joy himself. Look forward to the paradise, that super bloom, if you will, that he wants to bring into your life. And I want to close by reading Isaiah 35, 1 through 10 again. And I want you to hear the joy that comes in the midst of desert. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come and he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs in the haunts where jackals once lay. Grass and reeds and papyrus will grow and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness and it will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. I hope you can hear that God is ready to break into your world, to bring you joy, to bring this sort of restoration to you, if you will let him. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are called to be a joyful people, giving thanks to you and your good gifts. There are times, however, when sin and sorrow, they grow and they push joy to the side. 
and we lose sight of your grace, and instead we fall into despair. Sometimes we're consumed by loss, and we're distracted by stuff, and we're crippled with fear, and we focus on our lack rather than on your love. Lift our eyes, Lord Jesus, and renew our joy in you. Remind us that in your sacrifice is our forgiveness, and in your death is our resurrection, and in your coming is our joy. Through Christ we pray, amen. Go with Jesus.